You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Joyce McKinney. On June 17, 2019, at 5.35 a.m., 91-year-old Gennady Bolotsky took his dog for a walk in Van Nuys, California. As he and the small, fluffy white dog made their way along a marked pedestrian crossing at Wilkinson Avenue and Magnolia Boulevard, a large white pickup truck with a covered back ran straight through the junction, knocking Mr. Bolotsky over. The truck didn't stop. It barely slowed. Gennady Bolotsky, who was originally from the Ukraine and emigrated to the States during the Nazi occupation of his home during World War II, was brought to hospital, but later died of his injuries. The Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors offered a $10,000 reward for information that would lead to an arrest and conviction in relation to the case. On the 21st of June, reports of a vehicle matching the description of the one that had fled the scene of the accident came in. A white GMC truck was parked near to Burbank Airport. People working nearby had seen it parked there for some time and noticed that it matched the description of the car that was wanted. They called police and reported it, along with the fact that there was an occupant of the car who appeared to be living in it and that this person, a female, had been seen relieving herself on the street. When police arrived, they discovered a 68-year-old woman and three dogs who did appear to be living in the vehicle. The woman was Joyce Bernan McKinney, and she was arrested on outstanding warrants for battery and public nuisance. McKinney was then charged with assault with a deadly weapon, hit-and-run driving resulting in death, and vehicular manslaughter and her bail was set at $137,500. If found guilty, she faces a sentence of up to 11 years. A psychiatric evaluation was ordered to assess McKinney's mental competency. The tragic death of Gennady Bolotsky wasn't the first time that Joyce McKinney had found herself before the courts on a serious charge, however. She had plenty of experience dealing with law enforcement, from local police right up to the FBI and the police service in the United Kingdom. Joyce McKinney was the only daughter of a school principal and a teacher. She grew up in Avery County, North Carolina, in a small, close-knit community, Minneapolis. She was noted for her good grades and impeccable behaviour. She graduated in 1967 and went to East Tennessee State University. She then got an MA from the University of North Carolina. In 1974, she moved to Provo, Utah, where she attended Brigham Young University. There, she undertook a PhD in the School of Theatre and Cinematic Arts, and also taught speech. 
Alongside all of her studies, Joyce liked to compete in beauty contests. She placed in a number of them and was chosen as Miss Wyoming in 1974 and competed in that year's Miss USA pageant. When she arrived in Provo, Joyce moved into student apartments called the Riviera. The units were located just outside the university campus and were owned by the prominent Mormon family, the Osmonds. Joyce had converted to Mormonism herself after sharing housing with a group of Mormons while she was in university in Tennessee. She was attracted to the closeness of their community, which was very different from her own childhood and family experience. Not only did Joyce choose to rent from the Osmonds, she also went about insinuating herself into the same social circles as the pop band. Later, she would say she and Wayne Osmond had been in a relationship which he broke off. The Osmonds confirmed that they knew Joyce, but would deny that a relationship like that had existed. It was sometime after this supposed breakup that Joyce met Kirk Anderson. Kirk was from Orem, Utah, and was an elder of the Melchizedek Priesthood of the Church of Latter-day Saints. He was a typical young Mormon, very clean-cut, the tidy haircut and clean-shaven face, and very dedicated to his faith. The only thing really notable about him was his size. He was a big guy. Kirk and Joyce first saw each other while Kirk was pulling into an ice cream parlour in Provo. Joyce was sitting outside the shop in her bright orange Chevy Corvette. It was hard not to notice the pretty blonde woman sitting in the loud coloured car. The two started to talk. Kirk had met up with her only twice before Joyce was professing her love to him. They dated for a few weeks and, according to Joyce, the two quickly became engaged. Joyce would describe how Kirk had asked her to go steady and she told him that they were too old for that kind of thing. Kirk was just 19 and Joyce 25. And so, she said, they became engaged. By that stage, Joyce had moved from the Riviera complex and was renting a house to herself, again from Mormon landlords. The woman who owned this place cut Joyce a lot of slack and let her keep her dog there, a big English sheepdog named Millie. Joyce also had a waterbed installed in the living room, and it was there that she and Kirk first slept with one another. Apparently, immediately after this, Kirk felt that he had failed in his duties as a Mormon, given the prohibition of premarital sex in the Church of Latter-day Saints, and so he went to his bishop to confess his transgression. After getting advice from his bishop, Kirk broke things off with Joyce. But then, two days later, while Kirk was riding his motorcycle, as his car tires had been slashed, Joyce drove up behind him. She began following him. Kirk ended up driving off the road, but he did make it home. Joyce appeared shortly after and ran towards him, screeching about how Kirk wouldn't go to a party with her. After their breakup in August of 1975, Joyce had been persuaded to check herself into a local psychiatric clinic in Provo. But Joyce had climbed out of a window shortly after her arrival, knowing that Kirk was soon to leave on mission to California, and she needed to follow him. And so Joyce abruptly left Provo, bringing only a few things in her Corvette as she headed even further west. 
but Kirk had chosen Britain as the place to do his missionary work in, in the hopes that this would put an end to Joyce trying to find him. And it would be a while before Joyce herself figured that out. Most of her stuff was left behind, only to be retrieved a year later with the help of her two new friends, Keith May and Stephen Moskowitz, both of whom Joyce had met after making the move to California. Joyce met Keith May while he was training to be a pilot. He had advertised for flying companions and Joyce answered the listing. She told him that she and her fiancé were to be secretly married and she might have need of a private pilot to fly them to their secret honeymoon at some point. Keith came to know a lot of Joyce's version of her relationship with Kirk and advised her to forget about that guy. Keith said perhaps she would consider him instead. According to Keith, Joyce asked in response, why does everyone have to fall in love with me? In her continuing search for her lost love, both Joyce and Keith had visited two pastors of the Christian Research Institute in Anaheim, California, the Bodines. This couple devoted their lives to converting people from newer sects of Christianity, Mormons, Christian scientists, Jehovah's Witnesses, and so on, back to mainstream Christianity. Joyce told the married reverends that she needed help extracting her fiancé from Mormonism, but she would give little information to them about herself, not even her real name. Joyce used the alias of Donna when speaking with them. The Bodines thought that Joyce seemed intractable and that she was perhaps overreacting to whatever situation she had found herself in. They also thought that Joyce seemed emotionally unstable. The other friend that Joyce made was Steve Moskowitz, who she met at a film club. He too was in love with her, and soon after meeting, he allowed Joyce to move in with him. While in California, Joyce needed a source of income, given she had left her PhD studies and her teaching post at Brigham Young. So she placed ads in a supplement of the LA Free Press, an indie newspaper. She placed a number of ads under the pseudonym Joey, describing her background as a model and pageant winner, and listing the services she could perform. In addition to acting and modelling, she provided erotic phone calls, escorting services, nude massages, S&M, a fantasy room, and nude wrestling as services. Hers was one of many ads placed in the 24-page supplement, though Joyce's or Joey's, was longer and more detailed. All of them made suggestions about the services on offer, but none explicitly stated that these were ads for sex workers. Further ads where Joyce would call out to her clients were placed under the name Misty, who was part of a two-woman team. This wasn't just for safety. That was also provided through a tiny mic attached to Joyce's dog's collar which would then be monitored by Steve. But the other woman, Laura, was there to provide straight sex for clients of Joyce's who wanted it. One of the services that Joyce did not provide was regular old penetrative sex. She said she was saving herself for Kirk. If a client became insistent, Joyce would beg off, saying it was her time of the month. The pair cleared five or six hundred dollars a week that way. Joyce spent much of that in search of Kirk. She hired private investigators. She had Steve, 
try to hack into computers at Salt Lake City, a feat way beyond his skills, and eventually she had Kirk's home phone in Orem bugged. Sure enough, Kirk did call home, and that's when Joyce discovered that he was in England. On February the 14th, 1976, Joyce rang a firm of private detectives in Britain in order to trace Kirk's exact location and sent them £120 by post in order to do this. In the letter accompanying the payment, she explained why she was searching for Kirk. Joyce wrote that they'd been engaged and were expecting a baby, but the church had told Kirk to break it off, that Joyce was from Satan and the baby was a child of Satan. He was sent away to get him away from Joyce and the baby, and as a good Mormon, he complied. But Joyce thought of it more as being misled by his own church and was determined to break him free of what she called Mormon lies and false doctrine. The British PIs did their work and quickly traced Kirk to Reading. In August of 1977, Joyce put a final ad in the papers. She was looking for two quote-unquote big adventurous dudes. The ad said that they must be at least six foot two inches tall and weigh in excess of 210 pounds. These men were needed to, quote, help a lovely fox fulfill a unique romantic sexual fantasy as part of her wedding party, end quote. In return, Joyce was promising an all-expenses-paid trip to Europe. Bizarrely, Joyce had loads of responses. She settled on Jackson Shaw and Jill Parker, both guys who frequented the same gym as Joyce. One was an instructor there, the other a pilot. On September 15, 1977, UK newspapers carried reports that a young American man was missing from Yule, near to Kingston-upon-Thames. He was 21-year-old Mormon missionary Kirk Anderson, and he had disappeared from just outside his church after speaking to a man going by the name Bob Bossler. This man had called the church days before, expressing his interest in becoming a member of the Latter-day Saints. It was arranged that he would call by on Wednesday the 14th. Kirk had gone missing while outside looking at a map with Mr. Bossler. Kimball Smith, Kirk's roommate, rang the police to report Kirk missing. Police ensured that ports in the UK were notified in case Kirk was to be brought out of the country, but Kirk's fellow missionaries also told authorities that, ten months before his arrival in the UK, Kirk had been harassed quite badly for some time. He was run off the road once and windows had been broken at his home. Police were on notice that this wasn't the first time that Kirk Anderson had been a target for crime. Joyce and her crew had arrived in London Heathrow on the 5th of August 1977. Immediately, they ran into problems when one of them, the big dude called Parker, got a grilling in customs and immigration. As a result, Parker got cold feet and booked himself a return flight to LA for the following day. The remaining big dude contacted a guy he knew through flying, Alan Austin, who was able to help them negotiate their way through British society. Austin put them in touch with two other men who acted as sort of fixers, named Dennis and Kenny. 
They thought the Americans were weird, a bit nuts, but they'd brought Joyce to the bank to change her dollars to pounds and knew that there was money to be made. Dennis and Kenny procured a car for Joyce, and they helped her find a holiday rental. It was a little cottage that she secured for £50 a week in Dartmoor near Oakhampton. She wanted a place with bars on the windows, but she couldn't find one. Her fixers helped Joyce to arrange to have this cottage's windows reinforced with bulletproof plexiglass instead. After the house was rented, Dennis brought Keith May to a locksmith, where Keith purchased more padlocks than were seemly. Then Keith headed to a hardware store and bought heavy ropes and chains. The purchases raised a few eyebrows with Dennis and Kenny. After a few days, the bizarre behaviour of their new employers outweighed the possible financial gains, and Dennis, Kenny and Alan all parted company with Joyce, Keith and Shaw. Shaw finally left after Joyce threw a tantrum upon hearing that she'd been excommunicated from the Mormon church. He told the remnants of their little group that he was going to see some friends, and never returned. So then it was just Joyce who was outraged by the abandonment and Keith. Joyce reported Alan to the police as having stolen money from her, and when questioned by the police, Alan told them everything he'd learned over the previous days about the plot to pick up Joyce's former fiancé and that McKinney and May had arrived in Britain on false papers. When cops asked Alan why he hadn't reported this behaviour before, Alan simply said that he thought the police would have dismissed the story as too crazy to be true. When Alan heard the news that a Mormon man had been abducted, he again went to police, saying that the people he'd reported as having false passports must be the ones responsible for the bizarre kidnapping. By Saturday the 17th of September, Kirk had been recovered. It was reported the following day that he had told police he had been kidnapped and was held for three days on the order of a wealthy woman who was in love with him. And so on Monday the 19th of September, Joyce and Keith were both arrested at a police roadblock as they drove from Devon to London. The car had two fake 38 Colts in it, along with a bottle of ether mixed with chloroform and a box full of lingerie. When the cottage that Joyce had rented was searched by police, shackles were found, handcuffs and leg irons. As media interest in the case grew, police finally admitted that there appeared to be a sexual element to the kidnapping, and according to author Anthony Delano, the chief superintendent told the gathered press, off the record, quote, All I can say is that we found certain equipment, but I'll tell you what, I've never been lucky enough to have anything like that happen to me, end quote. While in custody, Joyce was described as emotionally unstable. While giving her statements, she begged police to tell her where Kirk was. In fact, he was just a few doors down in the same building as she. Joyce appeared in court for the first time on September 29th. She somehow managed to get a note passed to the awaiting press, which read, quote, I am innocent, please help me, end quote. Both Joyce and Keith May were charged with forcibly abducting Kirk Anderson, assault and unlawful imprisonment, along with being in possession of fake guns with the intent to commit an offence. 
when Joyce had left England, Steve Moskowitz was the one who looked after her belongings, sheepdog, corvette, and all. And when he heard Joyce had been arrested, Steve flew to London. This led to a scene in the courtroom where Kirk was approached by another unknown American man and confronted there. But fearing he might be somehow suspected of being involved in whatever Joyce had going on, Steve returned to California. Joyce's parents arrived from the States shortly after. At the end of that first hearing, both Joyce and Keith were remanded in custody. At her next appearance before the court, while being brought there in the back of a police van from Holloway Prison, Joyce had written a message on a page from the Bible she was allowed to carry. When she got in sight of the court building, she pulled the page from her book and held it to the van window. Her message read, quote, Please tell the truth, my reputation is at stake. It was very obviously aimed at the reporters gathered. Joyce was then pulled away from the window by her prison guard, and the other woman struggled to get the book from Joyce. But the prisoner was determined. Joyce pulled out a new page and held yet another message up for the press, which read, quote, He had sex with me for four days, end quote. And then another page appeared. It read, quote, Please get the truth to the public. He made it look like a kidnapping, end quote. Her final note read, quote, Ask Christians to pray for me. End quote. When the car finally stopped and Joyce was to be led into the court, she made a feeble attempt to run towards the gathered press and photographers before being restrained and walked into the building. It made for very good pictures. Joyce and Keith were present for the short appearance before the judge and were scheduled to return the following week to make applications for bail. At that hearing, Joyce also instructed her solicitor to apply for reporting restrictions to be lifted. Joyce also wrote a letter to the British press, who of course at that point could not print it, as the reporting restrictions had not yet been lifted. It was, however, sent on to the local paper in Minneapolis. It read, quote, I urge you to tell them the truth, that my nickname in high school was Iceberg, that I was boy-shy and seldom dated, I was more the studious type, and didn't even play kissing games at parties. Also, that I was never known to smoke, drink, or use any types of drugs or profanity, and that I come from a very good family. Also, that I represented Avery County in the Miss North Carolina High School contest as North Carolina's ideal high school girl, as well as being a North Carolina Junior Miss and later Miss Wyoming in the Miss USA pageant. End quote. The following week, the court was told of the false documents that had been used by McKinney and May to enter the UK. These multiple identities were argued by the Crown to indicate that there was a risk that McKinney and May could try to flee the country. Keith had nine aliases and Joyce four. The applications for bail were denied on the basis that Keith was indeed a flight risk, and evidence had been presented that Joyce had in the past attempted suicide and so it was decided that she might be a danger to herself if released on bail. At their third bail hearing, Joyce's lawyer argued that his client had multiple identities as she was in hiding from the Mormons, and explained that she had converted to that faith but had decided to leave. Joyce was now afraid of retribution from them. The situation was exacerbated by a relationship that was not sanctioned, according to the church's rules. 
Joyce sobbed during the hearings and pleaded with the reporters present. She put on quite a show, it would seem, to try and influence the public perception of her, but of course her efforts were wasted on a press that was limited in what it could report. There were a total of four applications for bail for McKinney and May while they were awaiting a preliminary hearing on their charges, and in each case their applications were denied. What was eventually granted was the lifting of the reporting restrictions that Joyce had requested. On November 23rd, Joyce and Keith appeared once more at Epsom Magistrates Court, but this time it was to be a preliminary hearing to determine if the case would be brought on for trial. And with reporting restrictions now lifted, more details of the crimes that May and McKinney were alleged to have committed would be heard. The prosecutor acting for the Crown outlined the case and said that the facts were not really in dispute. Rather, it was the interpretation of them that was in question. He argued that Joyce was, one, obsessed with Kirk, and two, that she had a deep hatred for the Mormon Church. The court was told that Joyce and Kirk had met two years before, that they'd slept with one another, and that Kirk felt badly about it afterwards and went to his bishop for advice. As a result, Kirk had broke things off with Joyce. The prosecution argued that Joyce had an all-consuming passion for Kirk and had harassed him and then followed him to Britain from Utah. Joyce had then kidnapped him and held him unlawfully for a number of days, during which time he was told that he'd be allowed to go if and when he made Joyce pregnant. Kirk went on to describe the abduction. The man going by the name Bob, the defendant Keith May, had turned up at their appointment, but he'd had a gun. Kirk was led to a car that was parked nearby. Joyce was in the car, wearing a dark wig. They drove at speed to the cottage. When they arrived in Dartmoor, Joyce cooked them dinner and told Kirk that she'd brought him there so that they could sort out their problems. She professed her love for him and said she wanted to marry him. She also said that she intended on holding him there for two or three months. The first night there, Kirk spent the night in a room with Joyce. She talked at him most of the night, and nothing physical happened. The next morning, the man Kirk knew as Bob arrived with a leather cuff attached to a chain and chained Kirk to the bed. The chain was about ten foot long, so he wasn't limited to the bed, but couldn't go far. Bob had told him that this was for Joyce's protection. Given he didn't know where he was, Kirk said that he thought his best bet was to cooperate with his captors and try to gain their trust. He was told about the so-called ransom, that he was to impregnate Joyce. The second night, Joyce again slept next to him. He kissed her and held her, hoping that this would be seen as cooperation and they would let him go. The third night, Joyce entered the bedroom wearing a negligee. She lay down next to him and he asked for a back rub. She tried to cajole him into having sex with her, but Kirk protested. Joyce got up and left, but returned with Keith May. He had a bag with him that had chains and ropes and padlocks in it. It was at that point that Kirk was tied to the bedposts by both arms and legs. After that, Joyce ripped off his pyjamas and his religious undergarment and performed oral sex on him, and then had intercourse. 
Afterwards, somewhat less shackled, Kirk had picked up Joyce and thrown her across the bed. She told him she didn't care and she would keep him there as long as it took to get what she wanted. Kirk ended up saying he would marry her, hoping that this would secure him some way to get out of the house and back to his own home. Kirk said that they had sex three times, but that he hadn't wanted to, and that he had been tied up throughout. Joyce's lawyers would argue that this had simply been part of bondage they were engaging in, and that Kirk had been willingly involved. There was also, during these few days, a trip to London, where Kirk had gone to a bank with Joyce, and walked with her in Trafalgar Square, and then the two had burgers at the Hard Rock Cafe in Piccadilly. Kirk said he hadn't made any attempt to leave because they were going back to Epsom. A letter was read to the court, sent to Kirk by lawyers acting on behalf of Joyce from two years previous, informing Kirk that Joyce was pregnant, he was the father, and that she wouldn't be getting an abortion or opting for adoption. The letter said that if he didn't agree to marry her, she'd sue him. Kirk told the court that he didn't think Joyce had ever been pregnant. She had made the announcement to him only three days after them having had sex. While Kirk told his story to the gathered court, Joyce and Keith sat together in the dock. Joyce cuddled up against Keith and they held hands. After Kirk's testimony, the statements made by Joyce upon her arrest were read to the court. Then Joyce herself took the stand. Joyce went through her CV, outlining her jobs but mainly her pageant participations. She said that when she'd moved to Utah, she had wanted to find a clean-living, decent Mormon man. The girls she had initially lived with horrified her. They drank and smoked and had nude pictures of men on their walls. Joyce told the court that Kirk had saved her from all the disillusionment that went with that. She said, quote, Any physical desire I felt was an indirect result of the real spiritual and mental love I had for him, a love he encouraged. She said sex had no pleasure for her as she was just trying to satisfy Kirk. She said she wouldn't have given herself to him without hefty promises. She'd been pursued by men for 24 years and was not innocent, naive, or easily misled, she said. According to Joyce, Kirk had told his mother that Joyce had raped him that first night that they were together back in Utah. He said to his mother that he had just lain there and she had done everything. From the moment Kirk went to his parents and his bishop, Joyce asserted that she had been ostracized. She was told that her baby was conceived in lust of the flesh. She said her car was vandalized with a crowbar. She got crank calls in the middle of the night threatening her, saying she was going to die or her baby was going to die. She was attacked by two men who had kicked her in the stomach. This and the stress of Kirk's rejection, Joyce thought had led directly to her miscarriage. Joyce said she had spent her entire life savings to turn up in England, and when she did, she had brought her wedding band and a trousseau with her. She told the court, I loved him so much, I would have skied down Mount Everest in the nude with a carnation up my nose. Kirk, she insisted, had gone with them willingly. He knew the guns were fake. He could have left the cottage at any time, but instead stayed and had her cook for him and give him back rubs and had had sex. If she had raped him, if such a thing was possible for a woman to do to a man, why had he been grinning throughout? 
Why did his body move with hers, she asked. She explained that Kirk had sexual hang-ups that led to the bondage. The shackles were just routine bondage play and Kirk, in today's parlance, was a consensual active partner. Joyce wanted to keep him happy, keep him away from prostitutes and the like, and make sure he was satisfied. But he felt guilty about having sex. Joyce said Kirk would throw tantrums after they slept together because he felt so ashamed. He blamed Joyce for these negative feelings, and having her put in jail, she mused, was an extension of that emotional drive. At the end of the proceedings, after Joyce had finished her 14-page speech, the magistrates committed both Keith and Joyce for trial in the Old Bailey to answer the charges against them, and both this time were released on bail. Their bonds were £2,500, with £1,500 to be paid up front in cash. Keith and Joyce were to live with Joyce's parents in a boarding house that the McKinneys had rented when they made their trip to Britain after the initial arrest. It was near to Holloway Prison to facilitate easy visits with their daughter. Along with their freedom, McKinney and May found that they were subject to some fairly strict bail conditions. They were barred from contact with Kirk Anderson, or indeed any member of the Mormon Church, and they had to sign on in the local police station twice a day. They also had a curfew of 9pm to 9am, where they were expected to be in the boarding house between those hours. Joyce left custody immediately after the hearing with her parents who were present to hand over the cash. Keith spent three days waiting for his family in California to gather the funds together. Though the two lived together as part of those conditions, they would insist to the press that theirs was a platonic arrangement. Though Joyce and Keith had strict bail conditions, Joyce was often spotted around London. She was a tabloid sensation, and the press eagerly awaited the trial at the Old Bailey in order that they could publish the strange and sordid details of the case without fear of poisoning any potential jury. The case was to be heard in the Old Bailey on the 2nd of May 1978, but neither May nor McKinney arrived when it was called forward. Public perception had been up to that point that Joyce was going to be acquitted, and there were grumbles about the Crown Prosecution Service wasting money bringing the thing to trial. In 1970s Britain, the notion that a man might be raped was deemed laughable. And even though McKinney wasn't charged with that, she couldn't be, the notion that Kirk might have found his experience with Joyce unpleasant was met with suspicion and disdain. In any event, Joyce and Keith's skipping of bail was just another sensational aspect of a case that seemed as if it had been tailor-made to play out in the tabloids. It emerged that on the 12th of April 1978, it was arranged through the press that Joyce would attend the premiere of the new Joan Collins film, The Stud. She was brought by stage actor and sometime Daily Express editor, Peter Torrey. Joyce was a sensation on the red carpet and a total natural, but the following morning, Joyce and Keith had fled Britain. Joyce had enlisted the help of her former landlady at the boarding house, Annette. Annette drank a little too much and was fond of whiskey, which Joyce was happy to supply her with while they made their plans in a local pub. 
they met there, knowing that the place Joyce and Keith were staying in had been bugged. Joyce and Annette had got birth and death certificates from a Mormon record bank and had new passports made for the two in the names selected. So after the premiere, Joyce and Keith checked in at the police station in accordance with their bail conditions, and directly after, Joyce pulled out a makeup case, wigs and glasses. Keith had apparently packed up all their things the night before, and the two set off with seven suitcases flying from Heathrow to Shannon, Ireland. From there, posing as people who were both deaf and mute, they hopped on a transatlantic flight to Toronto and made their way back into the US via Buffalo. The tabloid press was thrown into consternation by the Americans' failure to appear. The Mirror newspaper was sitting on an exclusive scoop on the story and could not publish it when the trial did not go ahead as planned, as the information might influence a jury should Joyce and Keith find themselves in the dock eventually. It was disastrous news for the paper, as it was in a battle with other tabloids. But once back in the States, Joyce began making calls to the press that had been so enamoured of her in London. Eventually, one of the papers decided to go with the story, despite the fact that the trial was still outstanding. A team from the Daily Express, including Peter Torrey, travelled to Atlanta, Georgia to meet with Joyce and Keith. The pair turned up to meet the reporters in blackface in an attempt to go unrecognised, and they were handed a briefcase full of cash containing the agreed fee. The reporters, runaways and photographers didn't stay in Atlanta long, though. Joyce was afraid that the FBI were looking for her, so they moved from place to place, with Joyce and Keith changing up their appearance at each venue to keep others off the trail. They were quite fond of dressing up as nuns. In terms of the relationship between Joyce and Keith, Keith had told reporters that he understood that Joyce was still in love with Kirk though it was the Kirk that she had initially fell for, not the one now denying her and making awful accusations. Keith said he was willing to wait. They were friends, like brothers and sisters. But again, according to Anthony Delano in his book on the case, Keith admitted to journalists that he and Joyce had engaged in sexual behaviour. Everything but, he'd said. The Express began spending money on teasing and advertising the story to come, and what was to be a week-long series of Joyce's version of the events. They soon published a tell-all interview. It was written entirely from Joyce's point of view, repeating the story she had told at her preliminary hearing at the magistrate's court six months before. But just as if Joyce had gone to court, her version of events did not go unchallenged. The story was met by the Mirror's bombshell. They threw caution to the wind in the face of the Daily Express's promised week-long series, and so published the material that they'd been sitting on for weeks. The Mirror printed a rival story that came out on the same day, one which uncovered Joyce's life and what she'd been up to while living in California searching for Kirk. When the story of the kidnapped Mormon first broke, they'd sent correspondents to both Utah and California to try and get a read on this strange emerging case. Through investigations, the reporters had come across Steve Moskowitz. Through Steve, they were told not only of Joyce's source of income while in LA, but they also got hold of some risque photos of Joyce. There was nudity involved, 
but they were sort of tasteful, if not a bit cliched. But this led to the discovery of even more photographs of Joyce, one where Joyce had posed for nude magazines. They were far from run-of-the-mill and were more the kind of thing you'd have to go to a specialty store for. The picture that Joyce had tried to construct of herself as a chaste and devoted Mormon woman who had been wronged by her man and his church crumbled, and quickly. On the same day she was pictured on the front page of the Express, in a demure turtleneck top, joyfully smiling, with a carnation held in her mouth, echoing that now infamous quote from her committal hearing. And then, there she was as well, on the front page of the mirror, lying down nude on a bed, with a knowing half-smile. Back in the States, after the publications began, Joyce got word of the rival story, and fell into a tantrum. The reporters, still with her, brought her to a local hospital in South Carolina, where they were at the time, and had her sedated. She tried to climb over the balcony of their hotel room. Joyce's parents were called. When Joyce saw her dad, she lunged at him and bit his arm, and then ran screaming through the hotel. On the second day of the week-long series, the Express tried to play down any implication that Joyce had anything like an unsavory past. The paper ran with a quote from Keith May, insisting that Joyce had never posed nude before. And yet, the same day, over at the Mirror, they carried a picture of Joyce on horseback, with entirely no clothes to be seen. The Express dropped their exclusive, and finally, Joyce and the case of the manacled Mormon faded from the headlines for a time. In June of 1978, McKinney and May were sentenced in absentia to a year in prison for skipping bail. No extradition proceedings were instituted by Britain. On the 18th of July 1979, May and McKinney were both arrested in the United States by the FBI on charges of making false statements in order to obtain passports, and ultimately they both received suspended sentences. Kirk Anderson married after he returned to the U.S. from Britain with his mission abroad cut short. He began working in real estate and had three children. But Joyce continued to try and see him. In 1984, Joyce was arrested in Salt Lake City for harassment. In her car was a notebook where she'd recorded Kirk's movements. There were also handcuffs and a rope. When Joyce once again did not turn up in court, the case was dismissed. Keith May faded back into society and died in 2004. Joyce became involved in a right-to-life group and then with animal rights organisations. In August of 2008, newspapers carried headlines and pictures of a woman who was the owner of the first cloned puppies. Bernan McKinney posed with puppies from a litter of five that were created from a sample of DNA from her deceased and much-loved pit bull, Booger. Bernan had paid a South Korean lab $50,000 for the cloning, a discounted rate because Ms. McKinney had agreed to take part in raising publicity for the lab in the Western press. But the face and name in the papers jogged people's memories. This American McKinney woman looked an awful lot like the Joyce McKinney who had been on the front pages in Britain 30 years before. What seemed like far too much of a coincidence was that Joyce McKinney's middle name was also Bernan. 
When the Daily Mail asked Ms. McKinney outright during the publicity interviews if she was in fact Joyce McKinney, who had been arrested 30 years before for kidnap, the woman snapped that she was only there to talk about the puppies. A week later, she would confirm to the press that she was in fact Joyce McKinney, but she protested her innocence, telling the Associated Press that the woman at the centre of the scandal three decades before was, quote, a figment of the tabloid press. I don't want that garbage in with the puppy story, end quote. In 2010, filmmaker Errol Morris released a documentary film about the case called Tabloid. Joyce herself gave interviews for the film, along with Peter Torrey, the reporter that had brought her to the film premiere and followed her back to the US for her exclusive story. But after the film was released, McKinney sued the director, saying that the film had defamed her, violated her likeness and privacy, and that Morris had misrepresented the project to her to get her to sign on to take part. The actions were ultimately dismissed. The case of the Manacled Mormon was about as sensationalised as you can get. The story hit the papers in the middle of a publication and circulation war between the British tabloid papers, but it also came at a time where there was great debate over the state of moral fibre in the British public and how the media influenced the state of public decency. But perhaps more outrageous than how the tabloid papers exploited this story were the very actions of Joyce McKinney herself. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you've liked what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe and give a five-star rating, or honestly just tell a friend. That really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Elizabeth Meacham, Ronya Murphy, and Amanda Fontaine. There are bonus episodes as well as ad-free episodes and Mens Rea goodies on offer, so please do check it out at patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Also, thank you to our sponsors for this week. Don't forget to head to betterhelp.com forward slash mens to get 10% off your first month of professional online counselling. Also, please check out my favourite vitamins, Ritual. Head to ritual.com forward slash mens to get 10% off your first three months and start your ritual today. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show, so please go check them out. Our theme music is Quinsong The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. The main source for today's episode was the book by Anthony Delano, Joyce McKinney and the Case of the Manacled Mormon. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. By that stage, Joyce had...